Hello there, this is your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner. Today I had the absolute pleasure of welcoming Scott Santons, who is a universal basic income advocate onto the podcast. This is a, a topic area that I do not have much experience or understanding of, and as such, based on um, some of the messaging I gave on my wrap-up notes in episode 15, I'm really looking to try and speak with a number of people in areas that I don't understand particularly well, um, as yet, but that do play into the inclusion, vulnerability, awareness, and mindset space. And this was a perfect um, first podcast into, in, into exactly that area, because Scott was so eloquent and easy to follow, thank goodness for me, um, with, with a topic that is actually pretty complex, but his way of delivering the benefits and basically the, yeah, j j just, just the humanity of the universal basic income approach was really, really helpful to me. On balance, it seems to be a, a mechanism that is actually very common sense. Like I say, it's very humane. And I think one of the other things that really jumped out to me um, that Scott mentioned was any hour I'm not spending on this idea, trying to make it happen, is a wasted hour. That is somebody that is absolutely living and breathing their purpose right now. I thought it's also interesting that Scott mentioned that this particular approach, it's not a political approach. You know, it's, this basic income is not left or right. It's actually forward. And I think that's a really nice visual that it gives us that, you know, this is something that cuts through the BS of politicians, of government, uh, et cetera. You know, it's really just something that is there to try and rehumanize, you know, <laughs> the human race, basically, for all intents and purposes. And I think another final point for me in terms of my introduction here to this podcast is something that Scott mentioned that really resonated with me was that when people receive a passive income of some kind, they don't stop working. They treat it as a raise. And I think this just really plays into how many stereotypes do we all operate within? You know, we've all got them, you know, we've grown up with them. We've learned them from our parents, we've learned them from our friends. But, you know, the, the, the typical person gets benefits, you know, they can't be bothered to work. You know, that's such a throwaway comment and something that, to be honest, isn't particularly evidence-based um, from my understanding to date. So this is a really fascinating chat, as with all, the, with all of these podcasts so far. I'm so grateful for Scott coming on. And, uh, and really sharing his wisdom, his insight, and his passion for trying to spread the message of UBI. And I hope that even if only one other person takes us on board, does some investigation and spreads the message further, then the podcast has been worthwhile. So please uh, dive in. I hope that you enjoy it. And please do offer feedback to Scott and or myself. Thank you. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. This evening, I'm very grateful, particularly on his holiday, uh, for Scott Santons to, uh, to, to join me. How are you, Scott? Good, good. Happy Labor Day. <laughs> Happy Labor Day to you all. And, uh, again, thanks a lot for uh, still seeing me on your, on your day off. So, yeah, no, happy to <laughs> so, like I say, very, very keen to, uh, to, to keep this to about half an hour, Scott, but I've been really following your work with interest, particularly the last six months. I was made aware of you following your, your previous podcast with Laurie Ruterman. Mm -hmm. um, so would you mind for my listeners just giving a, you know, a bit of a background as to who Scott is, why you're so passionate about UBI, and uh, maybe just a bit more of a background as to, as to who you are? Sure. So, uh, yeah, my name is Scott Santons, and uh, I'm a writer and a basic income advocate. Uh, I got into this back around uh, 2013. 
And uh, around then, too, I became a moderator for the Basic Income subreddit. And at the time, it was around 100 people uh, who had subscribed to that subreddit. And now it's over 50,000. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so this conversation has grown a lot uh, since 2013. When I got into it, I actually got into it through Reddit because of a conversation around how quickly work, uh, how quickly automation was advancing, how quickly technology was advancing, how people weren't really talking about it and weren't really understanding just how fast and what the implications were. That kind of got me into it. And uh, I found this idea called basic income and I started researching it. And the more I researched it, I went from thinking this is a a possible, um, you know, fix for, for where we're going. And it became, wow, we should have actually done this decades, if not even centuries ago, as being just something that's so important as a foundational kind of policy for like humanity itself, basically. So when I reached that point of it being so incredibly important, I thought, well, any hour I'm not spending really on this idea, trying to make it happen is like a lost hour. So that's where I'm here. Wow. <clears throat> it's pretty, sounds pretty um, transformational for you. What were you doing before? So you were actually writing what sort of freelance before you, you sort of got onto that UBI story, Scott? Or? Yeah, yeah. I was basically kind of living the future of work uh, my whole uh, adult life. You know, I, I got into, um, you know, employment basically through the, the internet, uh, self-employed websites design, and uh, then on the social media. And, uh, you know, was, I was always been, essentially always been self-employed. Um, since like 2021 or so. Um, So I've I've been living this life of, say, not having healthcare as part of, you know, my work, not having any kind of, any kind of protections at all. It's just all on me. And I I think also you'll see that people who are living that life, especially since this is increasingly the case with this uh, increasingly precarious work, more and more temp work and part-time jobs and gig labor and this this idea of this career of decades working at the same place working full-time and getting all these benefits it's just like kind of a relic of the past so those who are living this life uh, this new life of work or recognize this new kind of work they're actually much more likely to understand uh, and recognize the importance uh, and value of a, of a of this unconditional basic income floor okay um Looking into that, it's really interesting, actually. You posted something pretty recently this afternoon, Scott, where you, um, on, on Twitter, which really interested me, where you spoke about the right to exist is unconditional, mm-hmm. um, almost like a sort of principle of life. And I th- that really sort of touched me, to be honest, because there's, there's so much discussion around, if you look in the UK as well, we have the Na- National Health Service, you know, that gets berated and sort of challenged for being wasteful or whatever, but it does give us that, you know, that basic human right almost to, to medicine. To some extent, do you, mind, do you mind expanding a bit on that sort of that the right to exist is unconditional? It's a, it's a powerful point. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it, it's like, um, you know, we, we essentially all agree that everyone has a, a right to, to life. That's why, say, murder is, is considered a major crime. You can't take someone's life. And if you do, then your life might be taken or you'll be locked up for your life to prevent you from doing that. Like, we really value life itself. And yet, essentially centuries ago, what we did is it, we used to, like life used to be uh, able to be lived for free, essentially. Let's say there was no cost. People, you know, could say uh, hunt and gather. You know, they, you would just say work a few hours, essentially even per week. Uh, you could 
work enough to actually sustain yourself and live because everyone had access to what we call the commons. It was the common land. It was shared by everybody. And we reached this point where uh, it was called enclosure, where we basically drew borders around everything and said, this is no longer, this no longer belongs to everyone. This only belongs to the people who are considered the quote unquote owners. And then we created a bargain that said, okay, well, you're still free. You just need to work for those who own this land. And if you do that, then we'll give you essentially pieces of paper that you can buy the stuff that's on this land. And so essentially what we did is we went, so we respect everyone's right to life, and yet we blocked off all the resources people need to live and said, you need to work in exchange for that. And I just don't think that that's really respectful of the right to life. If you have the right to life, you cannot prevent someone from access to what they need to live. And it's not saying that everyone has access, everyone has a right to, you know, mansions and cars and, and this and that. It's saying that if we created a, a monetary system and private property, then you have to actually give people enough so that they can live unconditionally. If we don't do that, then we really aren't saying that you have a, a right to life. Wow. Uh, that, that's really poignant. What's jumping out to me as you, as, as you talk, Scott, is this, would you say to some extent technology is actually breaking that enclosure? And that's part of what the panic is right now with the, the power base is that there's this sudden, there's this huge, actually you can't enclose this discussion anymore. You can't enclose the resources as much anymore. Yeah, exactly. I, I consider this kind of a, a, a Gordian knot with, with three options. So if we created a monetary system where we require people to work in order to obtain money to live, then you essentially have three options. You can either, you can either make stuff no longer have a price that people need to live, in which case it would say free food, free housing, free electricity, free you know this and that that people need. Uh, or you can say, well, if we're going to require jobs to live, then everybody needs a job. And so we have to make sure everybody has a job. Or three, because everyone needs income to live, then we can provide everyone with income unconditionally. And they can decide what it is that they need for themselves, uh, you know, what to buy, and what to procure. So those are essentially our three options. And I, I, I don't think the, the first two are uh, essentially, uh, you know, great options. Uh, if, we, if, we, if we make stuff for, if we remove the price from certain things and we say, okay, stuff is free, then it, that can actually lead to a lot of issues because of the, the essentially the structure of the price mechanism. You know, it, it, we know that if stuff is free, then people overuse it, that they, you know, they, they, it's very wasteful. It's, it's inefficient. If food is free, if free at no cost, then you would, you know, you could bite a bite of an apple and toss it and who cares? It's free. So there's a certain, you know, there's a value to this uh, price mechanism. And so it, it is possible, let's say in the future, I do believe in the possibility for like a Star Trek economy where there's no money whatsoever. We're outside of a monetary system. But I think that we need to take a, a transitionary route to that. We can't just magically go from here to there. So that's why I think that just making stuff free isn't going to work right now. And the other way is just going about jobs. And I just don't think it makes any sense at all. Like if we can actually, if robots are working for us and the tools that we created to enable us to do more with less are enabling us to do more with less, why would we create stuff to do that we don't even need to do? It just doesn't make any sense to me that as we grow more and more productive, that we actually just invent work to do. Like, no, we should be working less. You know, this idea that there, we should have a 15 hour work week instead of a 40 hour work week was entirely correct. You know, it was this prediction 
that those are around now that would be the case. But we actually just said, well, we have to keep working essentially. Like we could be working right now 15 hour weeks and still be, you know, creating and buying and everything just as we are right now. But we didn't go that route. So we invented all the stuff we didn't need to do. So I think it just makes far more sense to just say, well, machines are working for us. They are essentially not earning paychecks and then we aren't earning those paychecks and then we aren't able to spend to buy what the robots and machines are making. So this entire thing is breaking down. So let's just make sure that people are essentially given the paychecks of the robots and then we can decide to work less and we can buy all the stuff that's being produced. We can make those distortions. We can decide to wear, we can decide for ourselves what it is that, the, you know, the work that we should be doing. That's really what I think is most important is, is this technology should be freeing us. It should be freeing us to, to live the lives essentially as humans that we should be, you know, deciding and choosing and having the freedom to do for ourselves. So that's why I feel so that that's the income, essentially decoupling income or even liberating work from jobs is the, um, is the way to go. It's really interesting because I'm not sure about the debate over over your side of the pond, Scott. But certainly over here here in Europe, there's there's an awful lot of fear mongering around AI and the robots are coming. And it's is there any particular what, what do you see behind that? I don't, is it the same over over your over your side of the pond around that that messaging? Oh yeah, again, that's how I got into this in the first place. It's uh, country after country is is looking into this finally. And of course, some countries are going to be more um, automated, more affected by automation than others, uh, especially if, let's say, um, if you're more of a manufacturing or more industrial kind of economy, then that's much more automatable. If you're in more services, that's uh, less automatable, but still automatable. So in the U.S., we're looking at uh, half as much paid work to do in the next 20 years, give or take various estimates of, you know, in the next, say, 10 years or 15 years or 30 years or whatever. But there's definitely a lot of paid employment, paid work that machines can do for us. And so that should not be a problem. That's the, that's the key here is that if we are growing more productive, then we can all work less and essentially have create just as much. The problem is this essentially, it's like this mass delusion or this uh, forgetfulness of the fact that we didn't even always work 40 hours per week. And actually, it's very fitting that we're talking about this right now on Labor Day here in the U.S. because, you know, we won a 40-hour week. It used to be 60 hours a week. And even, it's funny, if you look at the conversations back then, they were like, oh, those 40-hour week people, you know, they're lazy. Uh, they don't want to work. They're not understanding this, you know. And uh, it, but we we got down to forty hours, and that became completely normal. And the thing is, it became so normal for so long, it's like we've forgotten that we actually used to work more, and we used to care about working less. So you know why we should be looking at this as saying, yeah, if automation is an issue, then great, let's just work thirty hours per week, let's work twenty hours per week. As we become more and more automated, you know, if there's half as much work to do, we can all work half as much and be just as employed. Instead, we're panicking around this and like we're locked into this 40-hour week and going, oh my gosh, we're not going to have enough 40-hour jobs for everybody. So what's going to happen to them? It's just kind of a weird like, way of looking at this. <laughs> well, I'm learning as, as we speak now and it's sounding ridiculous to me. We've only been speaking for 15 minutes. <laughs> so thanks for the crash course, isn't it? <laughs> so, 
So, so what, what's sort of getting, you know, I, I'm hearing from what you're describing now that, you know, more, more and more people are looking at this. I've seen some of the sort of research on, 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 your, on your blog and your website, of the examples in sort of Africa, et cetera. Mm. What, what, what would you say are the one or two things that you're seeing right now get in the way of people or are, are there barriers that you're seeing more commonly, whether it be that go across borders, for example? Yeah, so uh, basic income is not left or right, it's forward. And when I say that, you've got people on the left and the right who are both for and against the idea. So let's say from the right, uh, a common um, argument against this is this belief that if you provide people with an income unconditionally, that they will do nothing whatsoever. It's this belief that, that you will make people lazy or that people are inherently lazy and that essentially the entire system will come crumbling down as people stop working and nothing gets done. Which, so that's a, a really interesting kind of view too, because it's essentially saying that if we didn't like whip people into working, if we didn't force people to work, then nothing whatsoever would get done, which is also kind of at odds with usually those on conservative on the right who will say that they believe in liberty and freedom. And so those don't really tie together. You can't say that someone is inherently lazy and must be forced to work at the same time, rah, rah, freedom and liberty. It just doesn't make any sense. And so the, on all the experimental data is actually against that too. In experiment after experiment of unconditional basic income, and even in unconditional cash transfers, uh, lottery winners, uh, dividend recipients, like all this, when people receive a, a passive income of some kind, they don't stop working. They just treat it as, say, a raise. Uh, it enables them to, say, start businesses, to choose the work that's best for them. That's really what this is about, is you can choose the work. You don't just stop working and do nothing. You know, it's just ridiculous. Um, but that's a very, like, a universal response. On the left, it's a different kind of response, I feel. It's more like, it's like a paternalistic response of thinking, uh, well, people can't decide for themselves what their needs are. They need me. They need government. Um, so, you know, the, what they really need is they need us to provide them with food, uh, shelter, uh, college, health care, um, you know, just all these things. And th those aren't necessarily bad things at all. Like We should be providing universal health care and say universal education. You know, that makes sense. But it's this like substitute saying that no people shouldn't be given cash because we can't they can't be trusted to use it. You know they'll use it on drugs and they won't use it to say learn more. That they won't use it to uh, buy clothes or electricity. They'll still just like fritter it away or whatever. It's a very paternalistic response, and also this belief that uh, because people um, there's even some of that people are lazy on the left too. And then the response is like, well, you know, let's create jobs for them. Let's just invent a whole bunch of government jobs that people can work in. And, you know, here we, because people can't decide for themselves what it is that, you know, what work they should be doing, let's make sure that we create the work for them and say, well, you know, we need this bridge to be built. So you're going to be a bridge builder, you know, now, and we need this done. So then you need to do this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's this really weird, um, you know, paternalistic kind of authoritarian instinct, I feel, uh, that's on the, the left. So it's like those kind of combined are your kind of common things. And then there's, you know, issues about 
uh, crossing borders, you know, immigration is a, is a fear for a lot of people, increasingly so these days. Um, so, you know, that's an issue. I'd say that's more on the right than the left, but uh, you'll see that country after country worries about, say, if a country adopts a basic income, then all of a sudden it'll be like a giant human magnet and everyone will go there. And again, it's uh, you know, the sky will fall down, you know, that kind of thing. Even though it, part of basic income too is that essentially it's like a, it's for citizens, you know. So there's, you don't just cross the border and suddenly get a basic income. It's not like that easy. There's always for every country to country, there's like a system you have to go through. Um, and there's also different ways going about it. So like in the European Union, you might have like a Euro dividend kind of thing where every European uh, country gets the certain amount. So then people can go between countries and they'd have that freedom without like, say, only one country having it. So there's just, there's a lot of details to get into. And there's certainly a lot of frequently asked questions and concerns about it. Oh, another one is inflation is another big concern people commonly have this idea that if people start receiving a basic income, then all of a sudden all the prices will rise to entirely erode the value of the basic income. And again, that's a very simplistic and, uh, you know, I would say, you know, entirely wrong-headed argument to make. It's almost saying that there's no point whatsoever in paying anyone more because then everything will cost more. So what you're, it's, it's like a very like worshiping the top kind of thing saying it's, it's okay for the top to get more and more and more wealthy and more and more and more rich and for them to get a larger and larger percentage of the pie. But as soon as the rest of the people get a larger percentage of the pie, then, oh my gosh, everything will come crashing down and it's entirely pointless. It's, it's this really weird kind of self-defeating kind of situation. And it's not the case at all. It's really interesting actually to get into the inflation argument and you know what the flex of supply and demand and even how the reverse can happen and how if you increase the supply, if you increase the demand, you can increase the supply enough that actually prices will fall. That's an entirely uh, possible possible effect, and it has happened in basic income experiments. So it's just it's, there's a lot of complexity to this, and it's just not a concern to that. But it's a common uh, first kind of reflex response. So I encourage everybody to to look into these things. Like there are a lot of frequently asked questions, and I have an FAQ in my site that goes kind of through all these things. So you can learn a lot more about it. It's just so much more than what people think it is of just saying, oh, I understand it because everyone would get say $1,000 a month. And that's all I need to know. That's not all I need to know. There's like a whole much more than that. No, thanks for, thanks for sharing that, Scott. I, th I had a look at those frequently asked questions and I've got to say it's very comprehensive. So, <laughs> so, so, so <laughs> appreciate you mentioning that. Um, one of the things I'd like to touch on with you, obviously part of this podcast is about inclusion and I'm really sensing a very strong sort of positive bias towards inclusion you know that sounds to me to be a, a major benefit of ubi is that would that be a fair comment from your side oh absolutely uh, there's actually across because there's a traditionally marginalized populations um, in country after country uh, basically the the effect of any kind of universal payment in uh, in countries where there are marginalized uh, populations and inequalities between gender and race and these things then that universal payment, because it's the same amount for everybody, means that it's disproportionately valuable to those groups and those people. It's just one of these interesting kind of uh, effects of, say, of, of flat universal amount. So just to explain a little bit about that, you know, if, say, uh, let's say the, uh, the median income for black families is $12,000 per year. That's not the case, but let's just, I'm going for easy numbers. 
and let's say for um, for white families, let's say it's fifty thousand dollars per year, or say forty eight thousand dollars per year. Yeah. So then, if you provide everyone twelve thousand dollars per year as a basic income, then you've just doubled the amount for those earning twelve thousand. You know, so that's a that's a it's a huge increase percentage wise. You know, you're like a hundred percent increase for a doubling. But if you're earning $50,000, $48,000 and you get $12,000, then that's a 25% increase. So you can see that as you're earning more, then that the amount that you're given you know, is, is less percentage-wise than those other people. And so that's just the numbers-wise. That's just the um, straight-up numbers. But then also, you know, you're looking at, say, the unconditional aspect of this is extremely important, uh, especially for race. Because, like, say, in the U.S., um, you know, race is a good example of how it's illegal to actually discriminate welfare based on race. But what they'll do to get around that is that for states that have, say, more black people than white people, then they're actually going to have a lot more conditions and restrictions and you know, strings attached to these things, lots more hoops to jump through in order to get it. And versus, say, it'll be a lot easier in more white populated states. So that's like a racial difference that's entirely eliminated if you remove all the all the restrictions, all the conditions entirely. You need that unconditional amount. And another example, let's say with disability, I think is a good example, where the way disability income works is you're essentially saying that if you're disabled, then here is some money for you. And if you earn money on top of it, then obviously you're not disabled. And so we'll take your money away. So it's like, it's a way of really creating a poverty trap for the disabled. It's, it's just locking them out of the economy entirely. It's, you're basically not allowed to work unless you can earn a lot of money to actually earn much more. It's like, say, Stephen Hawking didn't you know, rely on disability income in order to get by. He was able to write a bunch of books and, and be you know, very well-known and, and much wealthier than, say, your typical person with disabilities. So... If you have an unconditional basic income and you start working, then you don't lose that. You never lose that. You always add income on top of it. And because of that, that will just be a game changer for everyone uh, receiving a disability income because whereas you'll lose the disability income, you don't lose your basic income. And that's not to say, too, that you can't have both. You know, you can have – I always like to picture basic income as this floor that everything else is built on top of. And so you can have dis you can have a basic income floor, and you have a disability payment on top of it. It's a, you can totally do that. Now, the problem is too is that you will still lose that disability income because it's built on these conditions. It's just this you know that's the, one of the problems with it. But if you lose it, you only fall down to what the unconditional basic income amount is. Whereas right now, if you have disability income and you lose it, you fall down to zero. Or whatever it is you know that you're making which you can lose you know based if that's an employment or, or part-time work or whatever so it's just uh, the most transformative aspect of basic income is this unconditionality and that unconditionality really brings people in it's just a very inclusive thing because we have built these systems where conditions are meant to exclude people and we just kind of knock down those barriers and say no you're a human being you are a citizen of this country. Um, you vote and you also should be seen as being valuable, inherently valuable as a citizen. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter um, your race, your color, your gender, 
uh, your employment, um, none of that matters. You are recognized as inherently valuable. Wow, that, that, that's so powerful for me, Scott. You know, if you think about the sort of theories like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the base levels, you know, so, you know safety, you know, food, shelter. What, what I'm sensing is actually the system we actually operate today. A lot of people don't get those needs very easily. And ultimately, UBI would be one way of making sure that happens. So really, that Maslow's hierarchy becomes something true <laughs> for the first time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think Maslow's hierarchy is just a, such a great lens to, to look at this through. And it's, it's, uh, I've come to actually think about Maslow's hierarchy a little bit differently. Um, having, uh, what, so one of the things about me, too, is I have a basic income. I crowdfunded a basic income, and I live with this. I've lived with a basic income every month since January of 2016. So going on about like three years now. And one of the, I've learned some things having it. And so one of the things I've learned too is looking at Maslow's a little bit differently where it's like, if you look at say suicides, uh, people who kill themselves are not the people who uh, are unable to obtain their most basic needs, say of food and shelter. Like if you're lacking your basic needs, you're going to just keep on trying to, you know, get those. Like that's what uh, your, your physiological response is. You're focused on that. But the problem is, is that if that's the only thing you can ever obtain, if you're only obtaining your basic needs and just barely, and every month is just this fight to survive, and you're never reaching those higher steps of Maslow's pyramid, that's when suddenly you're like, what is the point of all of this? What is the point of life? That's when you start considering ending your life. So it's it's those top, the top of the pyramid, I think, is what's most important, really, for human beings. It's we're focused on, you know, uh, improving ourselves and reaching out to others, building community, building relationships and friendships and, and striving to create things like these are what's really important for humanity, uh, not just trying to to get food and shelter. So, again, if you just provide food and shelter, then people will strive to achieve all those things and more people will be achieving those things. And that's when you look at an entirely different population, because I think so much of what we see around us is from people being unable to reach those higher steps. You know, if you get into the scarcity mentality and you think that, that in order to reach higher than other people can't, you know, it's like the kind of the, the, have you heard of the, the claw, uh, the crabs in the bucket mentality, you know, say you put a bunch of crabs in the bucket and someone tries to crawl up and then the other crabs pull it down. Like that's the kind of situation I feel that we're in is we're just constantly trying to pull each other down instead of lift each other up. And that's what basic income does is it creates this floor that we're able, able to start ratcheting up and people obtain their basic needs. And then we just have a, a much healthier, uh, more inclusive society of people actually working together and achieving the, you know, the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. No, I love, I love, I love that. It's, it's, it's brought a whole new, a whole new dimension for me today, Scott. So thank you for that. No, that's, that's, that's brilliant. In, in terms of, if you don't mind me asking, so your journey into UBI for you the last three years, what's, what's been the sort of biggest learning for you and what's maybe been the biggest challenge you wouldn't mind just sharing maybe an example of each. The biggest learning. Um, and what's the second one? Sorry, and the biggest challenge, maybe the thing you've cha- challenged you the most switching over. Um, and this is from having a basic income or just yes, in yeah, researching yeah. basic Yeah, maybe something that's, you know, sort of shifted your thinking the most or you've sort of thought, oh, wow, I didn't expect that to happen coming onto basic income. 
Sure. So I, I think, you know, the, first of all, the most, uh, the, the very first thing I felt was this difference in uh, security, which to me was a, you know, it's like, it's a word that has a, a feeling to it, you know, and, and you, you know, you can know what security means. You can look it up in the dictionary and you can see what it says, but it wasn't until I had actual security that I realized how much I didn't have it before. And so even I think for me, because I had been living this, you know, kind of uh, future of work kind of life and not having real job security, then it was even more of an effect because, you know, suddenly I felt very secure. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's a whole lot of people out there that have no idea what the definition of security is because they've never really felt it before. And so you can tell people about it. Like I can talk about it right now and you can say, yeah, that sounds nice, this idea of security. But in, when you have it, it's just like, you know, like water in the face kind of thing. You're like, oh, that's what security is like. It's, it's just an entirely different ballgame. Uh, so that's one thing uh, is that security is just extremely important and just people have no idea what they're missing not having it and just make a huge difference. Another thing I just wanted to mention, too, is uh, an experiment, experience I had when I was called for jury duty. And so... You know, this is a civic duty and I'm expected to do it. And so I, I go there and I was even thinking that part of the deal here is that you are paid money as a juror and reflecting the fact that, you know, you are, 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 you're not earning money that day. You're out of your job, you know, these kinds of things. And so you need money. And so they pay you money. But what I learned is that this actually varies a lot, especially in the U.S. by state. And I was called, it was for four days of jury duty. And uh, it turns out that waiting around in this room in the jury pool is, is, you don't get paid for that at all. You only get paid if you're selected for a jury. And so you have four days there and you're just spending all day there, not getting, not earning anything, not getting paid. And the law in the state of Louisiana is that uh, it, employers only need to pay one day of that. So you have this whole room full of people, all citizens of the U.S., and all being called to do their civic duty as a citizen, and yet they're all essentially hurting. You know, they're essentially money is being taken from them in order to do this. It's a volunteer thing, but they're losing money. And in fact, you know, they could be, if you're in the case of self-employment and stuff, you could be losing jobs and losing income permanently. You know, there's a lot of things that could happen. And so it just seemed like this really heavy burden that was being applied and disproportionately, because if you're, if you're rich and you have a great job and, and they say they even cover all days, then it's nothing for you. But if you are barely getting by and you really need to work and you can't because you have to go in for four days and maybe you don't have a car. So you have to pay that extra money to take a cab or a bus or something. And you have to wake up really early for that. Or, you know, it's just like a whole big burden that goes on some people disproportionately than others. And so in that environment, I was thinking, wow, how different would that be if everyone here was receiving a basic income because they wouldn't be hurt you know, at all by this, at least in the same way, they wouldn't be losing that income, it would be there. And it would be this recognition. It's like the, 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 the nation saying, you are a citizen, and we value you, and you are paid a basic income. And we need you to do your part 
um, in this process to serve on a jury. And so I think that you would, that people in general would think differently about this. They would think more as I did about like kind of this pride of being there um, to engage as a citizen, to do your duty. It's be, it wouldn't be something people would be like, oh, how do we get out of this? What excuse can we say in order to get out of jury duty? I think that people would look at it differently. And so I think even taking that and looking at other things, I think we'd look at a lot of things differently if we felt valued as citizens and that the, basically that each other, you know, as, form, as forming a government, we would all recognize that each of us was helping all of us you know, with our lives. We would look at each other differently. We would look at the state differently. Um, I just think it would really change just a lot of these perspectives. Yeah, it's, it's thing, I'm just like to ask one more thing, if I may, Scott, because I'm conscious of time. And what I'm really sensing here is something to do with almost meaning as well. So you've got this sort of base level of humanity. You know, we are actually all connected as a human race. And actually from there, we can go forward and actually do stuff that we care about and not mm -hmm. stuff that actually, you know, we're just trying to put food on the table. Is that, that's really sensed to be a strong part of this, this sort of UBI. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that um, I like to emphasize that there's a big difference between, between jobs and, and work. Mm -hmm. So I think we like to synonymously exchange those as being equivalent. And, and they aren't. Uh, jobs are a subset of work. It's a form of paid work. But there's a whole lot of work that isn't paid that is also, I would say, even arguably more important than the paid work. You know, it's this, all the care work that's out there is extremely important. And I think that, that in this world, actually on a global level, if you're looking at humanity, um, only 15% of people are engaged by the work that they do. So it's an extremely small number. And so if you actually, if people have this choice, and that's what really this is about, if you, if you provide people an income unconditionally so that they can choose the work that they're doing, then you can raise that number. You can actually have, you know, hopefully 60, 70, 80%, 90% of people engaged by the work that they're doing because they're choosing to do it. They're not being forced to. They're not there because that's their only way of getting by they're there because they've decided to be there and that you know they have the bargaining power to refuse jobs that they don't want to do say even damaging jobs how many people are in jobs that they feel are actually hurting the environment uh, hurting society you know let's say uh, how many people are really happy about working like in a payday loan place where you know they know that they're just completely screwing people over with thousand percent interest loans and these things but they look at it and go, well, I need the money. And so it's more important. I have to look after me and my family first. And so that, that's a big problem, uh, not only for society, but you know, just how happy are what we're doing. I want to enable everybody to pursue the work that they feel is most important to them and to society. And I think that if we create that kind of society, that it's, you know, it's a world game-changing kind of thing where you'd have much happier people with uh, stuff getting done that's much more important to get done. You know, how much more art would there be? How much more invention and creativity and innovation? How much more would people work together? I think all of these things would just be an emergent property of making sure that everybody has this unconditional income floor. Oh, brilliant. Well, look, just before we get your contact details, Scott, what's, what, what's inspiring you the most right now? Can be anything. What's inspiring you the most right now? What inspires me the most right now is hearing the stories of 
these um, recipients in pilot experiments going on around the world. Um, most recently, it's the recipients in Ontario. And um, so if people aren't familiar with this, you know, you, you have this Space Kingdom experiment on, in Ontario that was meant to be three years, and it was canceled uh, prematurely with a shift in leadership and government um, going to the, you know, the progressive uh, conservatives won, this uh, person named Rob Ford won. And even though he ran on basic income and said that he would continue the project, he just canceled after the fact. So you have these 4,000 people in Ontario that were receiving basic income. And fortunately that will be extended to March 31st of next year. But it's, it's, it was already incredible hearing their stories, how much uh, basic income had begun to transform their lives and just in the ways that it was transforming their lives too. So, so I recommend that people look these up. There's actually uh, a website too uh, that you can look at, the, there's basic income uh, voices. And you can go there and you can look at this. There's a Twitter feed too called at humans basic where people can go and there's a, like a photo project going on where, where participants have signs and they're showing like what basking was doing for them. But just as, as one example that I think is, was, was powerful is uh, one of the, one of the, the, one of the recipients was a mother with a child and she had, she has to go to the hospital a lot with her child. And before basic income, you know, she would rack up like, um, you know, parking fees and parking tickets, you know, then the, 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 just the cost itself of parking was an issue. And, and it's just, a, you know, it's a huge burden. And so this burden was greatly lifted uh, by having this basic income to be able to do this. And one of the stories that she said is just on the way home from the hospital one time, um, shortly after starting with basic income, her daughter asked for um, a soda. I was like, can we stop and get a soda? And she was able to say, yes, like there, we can stop and get a soda. So before she couldn't do that, just not in the budget. Something so small and for so many people we don't look at or give a second thought to. For her, it's a real decision. Like I can't afford a soda, but she could now. And because of that, she felt like a better mom. And so it's just this, these really small things can have very large ramifications and it's really inspiring to me to hear these effects, these, these, these transformed lives that people are actually already having. So here I've been fighting for this and to actually see people receiving this and having it transform their lives in hugely positive ways, that's very inspiring for me. And it just makes me want to push even harder to make sure this happens faster and for everybody. Fantastic. Well, look, th thanks for the uh, the. Really, really inspiring message to finish, Scott. How can, how can people reach you who may not already be following you or, or not already be in contact? What's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, you can find my, uh, my blog at scottsantons.com and uh, I'm on, on Twitter at scottsantons. I'm on Facebook at scottsantons. You know, so if you want to find me, just look up my name and you can find me. <laughs> not too many other Scott Santons with a UBI. Nope, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no other Scott Santons in the world, I don't think. <laughs> Well, brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today, particularly on Labor Day. Scott, really appreciate it. And, uh, All right. To yeah, no. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Hi there. Just your host, Gary Turner, wrapping up this totally engaging and really, really interesting 
learning experience for me, to be honest, with Scott um, today. And I hope that you, you guys have got some, quite a few takeaways. Just to wrap up a few of my main thoughts, some of the quotes that Scott made, such as we should have done this decades, if not centuries ago, and that the idea of careers of decades, um, working at the same place, working full time, getting all of those benefits is a relic of the past. It just really sort of smacks us in the face. There's so much talk right now around the future of work, around organizational structures, moving from fear-based to freedom-based leadership, etc. But I can't help feeling that an awful lot of the stuff we're talking about are actually symptoms of something like this system not being in place. If we did have UBI, if everybody did have a guaranteed amount of money, if those basic hierarchy of needs were actually covered and people were doing work that mattered to them, that was meaningful, that they really cared about, I wonder how much that would actually shift so much of the symptoms such as, you know, the fear, the, you know, disorganization, the dysfunctional teams, etc. If, if more and more people were just doing work that they loved because they had enough money to get by. Really, really interesting reflection for me that. And um, yeah, one I'd like to, to probably follow up with, particularly with people in my network. One of the really, really strong comments that came, smacked me in the face speak, um, listening to Scott was, essentially, we all agree that everyone has a right to life. We respected one's right to life, and yet we blocked off all the resources people need to live and said you need to work in exchange for that. So something happened when we moved from this common system into um, land ownership. And it, this, this thing makes me think of a book I read some time ago from the, uh, I think it's the Chilean econo um, economist, Hernan de Soto, when he was talking about that, you know, in Latin America, you just do not have anything if you do not have the ability to own land. And that's such an interesting reflection that we've built up this system where ownership is king. And if you don't own anything, you're, you're literally a pauper. And that's why we have such a hot property market. That's why prices continue to get put, uh, pushed up um, with investment money coming in all over the place in central London. You know, if everybody had a basic income and a roof over their head, those base levels of, hier of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, truly, everything would shift. Absolutely everything in terms of the capitalist model would break down. It would become far more um, inclusive. Um, we, we'd have far less racism, far less sexism, far less everyism. I just really, really believe that this UBI, and I'm new to it, and I appreciate I'm sounding enthusiastic, but the base humanity of this system, assuming that it works, as, as Scott is alluding to, you know, why are we not doing it? It's just absolutely crazy. But I'm sure we can all, all, all think of the reasons why. One of the really interesting points as well here is around sort of allowing the robots to do the jobs um, that humans pretty much don't want to do. You know, liberating work from jobs is the way to go, to, to quote Scott. You know, if we're growing more productive, then we can all work less. We can move towards these four-day weeks, such as the, uh, the New Zealand company that's, that, that's recently moved towards that. You know, the annual, you know, whichever stats you look at, whether it be the Gallup, you know, 15%, which Scott referenced, or if we're being optimistic, the one in three being fully engaged um, that Gallup have, have referenced for well over 20 years now. That still means if you've got people doing things that they love, things that they really enjoy, but from a basis of having a roof over their heads and food, food on the you know food in their stomachs, you know, you're basically looking at completely transforming the world of work and society at large, and particularly from an inclusion an inclusion point of view. So we can start to think actually why this is actually quite a big threat to the current structures. You know, it does mean redistributing income more fairly. It does mean people having to you know having to provide work that's meaningful because people would have a choice 
if they have those base needs covered, whether or not they go to work for certain employers rather than feeling that they have to. So I'm really, really excited by this, as you can probably hear by my reflections. What also made me smile a little bit as well is this, you know, the big difference between jobs and work. And if anyone's heard about David Graeber's work, I've got his book, which I've not got around to reading yet, but it's here in front of me, which is on bullshit jobs, where basically so many of the jobs actually don't contribute to society in any meaningful way. However, those that do, such as doctors, nurses, ambulance drivers, um, you know, carers, all of these people are really on the minimum um, salaries. However, they're the ones that really contribute the most to society and to, and to the cohesion of society. And I think you know, that, 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 that's something that's really, really challenging um, to try and get your head around right now. And I think one of the last things I'd just like to, to leave, leave you with as well is this idea that how much more art would there be? How much more innovation, creativity um, and problem solving would there be? How much more would people want to work together? How much more would we want to live together? How much more would we want to collaborate as a human race? I've emphasised this point with you, a singular human race, you know, you know, race, colour, creed, sex, you know, how you, how you identify it. All of this stuff's completely irrelevant. We are all connected as one human race. And this UBI really plays into that. And the only reason it wouldn't happen is if the power base at the top, those that have most of the money today, continue to hold on to it in the way that they do currently. So please challenge me on this. Please challenge Scott on this. But I really want to get a, a bigger debate going around universal basic income as part of my immediate network and uh, I really want to help fuel and spread Scott's message so that more and more people there's a real momentum as clearly Scott's already built but this should be a conversation we're having within HR departments within corporate organizations within entrepreneur, entrepreneurial organizations you know how are we contributing to bring UBI into being you know how can that be part of our strategic imperatives as we move forward because although I've only got a very basic understanding and Scott's helped me massively with that this is something we have to move towards. I feel it in my heart. This is something we have to be moving towards. It just makes sense. It makes human sense. So yeah, let me know what you think. Please, please as I say, please challenge it. Please contribute to this conversation. But um, you know, I'm really excited by the prospects of UBI and I'm, I'm interested to hear what your thoughts might be. So really hope to hear from you on the next podcast. Um, we'd really appreciate any reviews at the iTunes copy of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. You know, The more feedback that we have, good, bad and indifferent, the more people can hear what the uh, the podcast is about and hopefully it will reach more people, particularly when we're having conversations like this, which are really um, looking at base humanity. So thanks very much for joining me again. I'm your host, Gary Turner. I look forward to hearing, hearing from you and hopefully um, hearing about you on the next podcast. So all, very, all the very best for now. Take care.